Hello, and welcome to the opening episode of The Mystery of the Ragged Stranger. My name is Michael Hendricks, and I will be your host. This podcast aims to take a deep look at was one of Chicago's most famous crimes. In 1920, on a quiet north side street, three people entered a tiny vestibule of a two-flat. Ten gunshots later, only one person emerged. World War I, mental illness, love affairs, Chicago police shenanigans, the first John Doe murder trial in Chicago history, Illinois politics, and the writings of one of the period's most illustrious writers are but a few of the topics we will touch on. This podcast is being presented to you in partnership with Chicago Now. Quite a few years back, I was reading a book on the haunted houses of Chicago when I came across the last thing you want to find in such a book, your home address. My upstairs neighbor Chuck had knocked on my door one Sunday morning at 11.59 on the eve of Halloween. He held a book in one hand, an enormous whiskey and coke in the other, and made his way to the couch before kickoff of the noon Chicago Bears game. The book was tossed on the coffee table, and I was told to check out the dog-eared page. Bear football obviously took priority, however, and the books I'd ignored until halftime. With the Bears leading the Lions 13-3 at the half, I went out and sat on the front stoop to take a look at the book. It was titled More Chicago Haunts from Chicago writer Ursula Bielski, and the dog-eared page was for a chapter titled Campbell Avenue Haunts. Interesting, I thought, seeing as how I lived on Campbell. The next page, even weirder, was a picture looking down the block I lived on. Seven paragraphs after that, jumping from the page at me, was my address. The chapter went on to tell a story of a double murder committed in our vestibule, the very vestibule I was sitting just a few feet away from. The book went on to tell tales of ghosts being seen or heard, both inside and outside our house, and my own interaction with the spirit will be discussed in a later episode. While I'd typically never been a big fan of ghost stories myself, I was fascinated by the Ragged Stranger story, and I wanted to know more about the normal rather than the paranormal facts of the story. Going back inside, I tiptoed through the vestibule with a newfound reverence for the tiny foyer. The Bears game was paused on the DVR, and whiskey was refilled for neighbor Chuck, while I did a quick Google search about the Ragged Stranger and Carl Wanderer. News clippings and photos of Carl, his wife Ruth, and the Ragged Stranger were printed and stuck to the fridge. Not a day has gone by since where this tale hasn't stared me in the face. Over the years, I delved deeper into the story. I found multiple narratives that contained striking contradictions. Newspaper headlines the day after the murder hailed Carl Wanderer a hero for avenging his wife's slaying. Three weeks later, he was in jail for murder. A quick look at Wanderer's Wikipedia page seemed to conclude that he'd killed his wife and the ragged stranger because he had a girlfriend named Julia. Or maybe it was a homosexual lover named James. The ragged stranger, an unwitting dupe to Wanderer's diabolical plan, laid in the morgue for over a year, repeatedly misidentified. At least 16 men were at one time or another thought to be the ragged stranger. Was he Al Watson or Eddie Ryan? We know it wasn't Earl Keyes or Joseph Ahrens. Both of those men were identified by their own family members as having been the ragged stranger, yet both of the men turned out to be alive and well. Ahrens went so far as to visit the morgue himself to view the body where he said, quote, He resembles me remarkably, and I can understand how the mistake occurred, end quote. We'll take a look at all of these men, each with their own compelling stories surrounding their identifications. I will explain why each man can or cannot be the Ragged Stranger. The Ragged Stranger was front page news in 1920 and 1921, from the Seattle Star to the Palm Beach Post. What you will hear is taken from hundreds of newspaper articles and dozens of books. Court files thought to have been long lost to a fire were found. Weeks of sitting at the Newberry Library staring at microfilm led to eyeglasses for your humble storyteller. Military records from the U.S. Army, as well as from our neighbors in Canada, were studied. Contacts were made with U.K. historians, and several interesting facts in the story will come to you from across the pond. I've tried to use only facts that can be backed up by multiple accounts. You will hear examples of how single accounts have been spread like Chinese whispers, and been erroneously reported elsewhere, and then repeated over and over in the copy-and-paste world we live in. Contemporaneous reports will be compared to some narratives that, shockingly, didn't emerge until over 50 years after the crime happened. These narratives will be discussed, and how they went off the rails will be explained, for you to make your own informed decision on what to believe. This podcast aims to fill the gaps where there is unknown, correct false narratives where they have branched away from the truth, and most importantly, to entertain and enlighten. It has been sourced from research for my upcoming book, Kisses for Julia, Bullets for Ruth, The Mystery of Carl Wanderer, and The Ragged Stranger. By the way, the Bears were going to beat the Lions in overtime that day on a Charles Peanut Tillman interception return for a touchdown. 
The win pushed the Bears past the Lions into first place and put them on their way to the playoffs. Happier days those were for us Bears fans. But enough about sports. This is a Chicago true crime story. The mystery of the ragged stranger. Let's first take a look at our main characters. Ruth Anna Johnson was a late Christmas present to her family, being born on December 27, 1898. Her mother Eugenia Johnson and father Charles Johan Johnson were both Swedish immigrants and Ruth was their third child. Eldest was son Carl Eugene at age four, while daughter Edith was two years old at the time of Ruth's birth, though Edith would pass away on Christmas Day the following year. Charles worked as a tailor, and Eugenia doted on her children. The family grew up in the Lakeview neighborhood at 3725 Maple Square Avenue, which is now known as Magnolia Avenue. Around the corner from their house was Holy Trinity Lutheran Church, where when she turned 14, Ruth's mom let her join the church choir. Singing was her one true joy, and it was said that if Ruth wasn't home or in school, she could be found in church singing. The shy girl was able to have her voice heard in all its glory, while remaining a face in the crowd. Mrs. Johnson would send Ruth and Carl Eugene to the Wanderer Family Butcher Shop at 2711 Northwestern Avenue. The children passed several other butchers on the two and a half mile walk to the Wanderer Shop, but Eugenia insisted it was worth it. Charlie Wanderer was a straight shooter who gave her his best cuts and kept his thumb off the scale. It was in the Wanderer Butcher Shop that Ruth blushed as she stole sidelong glances at the butcher's boy, Carl. Carl Oscar Wanderer and his twin sister Laura were born in Chicago in late June of 1895 to Charlie and Anna Wanderer. Carl's father was born in New Jersey to German immigrant parents, and if there ever was a good man, Charlie Wanderer was him. He was well thought of in his Logan Square neighborhood and was said to be an honest and likable man. Carl's mother was a different story. She immigrated from Sweden as a teenager, and some years after her children were born, a religious mania had taken grip of the woman and had grown over time. The woman took her religion to the point of not speaking a word unless it had beneficial meaning, as she was commanded by the scriptures in Matthew 12:37, For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. In retrospect, it was a very prescient verse that her son would later regret having not heeded. From his earliest recollections, Carl was put to sleep most nights by a Swedish prayer his mother would sing to him. Translated, it goes, quote, God in heaven, we children small, ask you to watch over us. We are little Lord and weak. Make us good and keep us meek. Amen. End quote. Anna Wanderer's power of prayer was put to the test when Carl was seven and contracted scarlet fever. The young boy was in the hospital for months. One day, on the edge of delirium, he was caught running down the street naked after having descended the fire escape outside his hospital room. Medical treatment and prayer, according to Mrs. Wanderer, finally healed the boy and allowed him to return to school. Like many twins, Carl and Laura were inseparable, less to Carl's want and more to Laura's desire to follow her brother everywhere. It wasn't until after the family moved and enrolled the twins in a new school for fourth grade that Carl was able to leave his shadow behind as the twins were in separate classes for the first time in their lives. Without Laura appearing over his shoulder, Carl's personality started to emerge and overshadow the bashfulness he had been prone to. He maintained good grades, but became a class clown and prankster without the moral compass provided by his twin. Once, he dipped a classmate's ponytail into his inkwell on his desk. Getting banished to an anterior room by his teacher was no deterrent to young Carl. He climbed out the window, shinnied down the rain pipe, and went home to play hooky the rest of the day. If not for elder sister Hattie's penmanship, being nearly identical to her mother's, the off-sent home notes admonishing Carl's behavior would have been met sternly by his parents. Despite the fire and brimstone religious commandments placed on the boy by his mother, his father operated with equal parts carrot and stick. Once, upon having found Carl sick after smoking a cigar, a spanking followed, as well as a promise from his father that he would pay the boy $50 on his 21st birthday if he abstained from smoking. As Carl liked clothes more than smoking, he took the deal. His mother typically provided Carl hand-me-downs from his father, and the $50 would provide Carl the wardrobe he wanted. Style was very important to Carl. The prepubescent wanderer had a childhood typical to most boys his age in the neighborhood. He later said one of his favorite activities consisted of swimming in the Chicago River at the clay hole below the Western Avenue Bridge. As frightening as swimming in the Chicago River would be today, imagine what it was like in a day when countless stockyards and leather tanneries were in full production and pumping their waste into the river. It wasn't long until those melancholy days 
gave way to teenage troubles. Petty larceny like stealing some grapes, hopping on a streetcar without paying, or fighting local toughs to prove his newfound manhood. As a teenager now, not getting home when dad called led to being greeted with a locked door and having to sleep outside with the family horse. Like most boys entering puberty, he found young love. In Carl's case, it was a girl named Olga that he said was the prettiest girl in the school and the first girl he ever kissed. Carl was 15 when he graduated from the Brentano School in Logan Square. Rather than go to high school, he went to work alongside his father in the family butcher shop and would have continued doing so had his mother not suffered a breakdown. She had taken a sneaking out of the house at night and roaming about, praying aloud to herself as she clutched her Bible to her chest. A doctor diagnosed her with melancholia. Rest and fresh air were prescribed to aid her recovery. Poor Charlie Wanderer had a butcher shop to run, three children that needed looking after, and a manic wife. When his wife told him that voices in her head had told her to move to Tennessee, specifically to God's country in Tennessee, he didn't put up much resistance. He knew efforts to stop her would be futile and might even make her tenuous situation even worse. Perhaps country living was just what she needed, he thought. He had to mind the butcher shop, though, so he sent her, fresh from her breakdown, to Tennessee by herself, but with his proxy, to purchase a farm. She found a 40-acre plot suitable for a vegetable farm in the tiny town of Deer Lodge, Tennessee. The children moved to the farm with her, while Charlie and Carl's girlfriend Olga stayed behind in Chicago. Charlie made a few trips a year down south to visit, and the children headed north for their own visits a few times a year as well. At the age of 15, Carl was the man of the farm. Being the man of the farm, though, was vastly overrated to Carl, and brought several consequences that he did not enjoy. Early mornings, late nights, calloused hands, and a sore back were but a few of his complaints. His mothers and sisters contributed, but not enough to please Carl, who soon planted seeds of resentment alongside pumpkin seeds. Fresh air and being in God's country had not been the magic cure-all for Mrs. Wanderer, as had been hoped. Her religious mania continued, but her overnight forays, praying in a Tennessee field, were viewed as a safer alternative than her doing the same thing on the streets of Chicago. She would always come home after a day or two, and no trouble seemed to befall her, so no attempts to restrain or sedate her were made. For once in Carl's life, the church would offer something beyond a place to go to listen to music. Working six days a week, they gave him a welcome respite from toiling in the hot sun. Their mother got enough prayer in during her nocturnal escapades and left the children to attend services on their own. Often the children attended the morning service, walked the three miles home to have lunch, and then walked back to the church for an afternoon Sunday school, just to lengthen the amount of time spent away from home and their mother. The time away was proven to be more and more necessary. The times her father came to visit also helped to ease the tension. On one such visit, Carl hooked up their horse and buggy to go for a ride before heading into town for church. The Wanderer family stopped at a neighboring farm for a drink of water, and in the course of speaking with the neighbor they called Granny Smith, she commented on Carl and his twin sister Laura, and remarked that her granddaughters were twins as well. Upon meeting the girls, Emma and Etta, Carl knew he was again in love, this time with Etta, though he had a difficult time picking her out from her sister. Carl spent two years courting Etta and considered her his steady girlfriend, though in a sign of the times for young love, he never kissed a girl, nor even held her hand. Carl was increasingly growing frustrated with country living and the demands the farm placed on him. In addition to the long hours harvesting vegetables, another distasteful act had landed on Carl's shoulders. The farm was losing money, and the family needed to supplement their vegetable sales somehow. The family considered a few alternatives before they decided raising hogs was their best option. While Carl didn't mind the aspect of raising the hogs, it was more the matter of disposing of the hogs that bothered him. With his training as a butcher, he knew he'd be able to make more from each hog by selling it butchered, but the young man would need to cross his own bridge of size in order to take him from raising the hogs to slaughtering the hogs. His father had always bought hogs for their butcher shop that had been slaughtered in one of the many meatpacking plants in Chicago. All they would need to do in the shop was break down the dead animal. Killing the hogs himself gave Carl fits, no matter how quickly or humanely he tried to kill them. No matter what he tried, a last death squeal would emerge from the animal. Carl eventually found that the quickest way to kill them, the one that gave the least opportunity for the squeal to be heard, was a gunshot from a revolver. Carl had always loved to read, but the young boy was becoming a man. Tales from Louisa May Alcott soon gave way to the masculine-laden stories from Rex Beach and the illicit love stories of Eleanor Glynn. 
Such tales would linger in the imagination of the growing boy, and would soon manifest in one of his earliest displays of narcissistic and rash behavior. Reading at night would take him away from his troubles, and a book that he was engrossed in reminded him of his own situation. A fellow with the weight of the world on his shoulders solved all his problems by up and joining the army. No sooner had he read the tale than he decided that such a course of action would also be the right move for him to make. The next morning, Carl rose earlier than normal and walked into town. He caught a train to Harriman, Tennessee and walked into a U.S. Army enlistment office. The 17-year-old Carl then forged his mother's signature in order to sign up for a three-year tour in the Army. Upon waking, his sisters and mother found no sign of Carl, nor any note to explain why he had run away. Nor had he left them any instructions or guidance of how the three women should manage his duties on the farm. A letter arrived weeks later to inform them that he had joined the Army and was stationed in Ohio. The farm failed soon after he left, leaving his mother and sisters no choice but to leave God's country and return to the smoke-filled streets of Chicago. Carl was assigned to Troop I of the 6th Cavalry and began training at Fort Meade in South Dakota. Carl took to his new life easily. He had always taken direction well, and the discipline of the Army kept Carl's attention busy. As many of Carl's new brothers-in-arms were not overtly religious, Carl, quote, shed my religion like an old coat, and I didn't have any qualms about it, end quote. He would soon be swearing like a sailor, but drew the line at colorful language. Booze was still not of interest to Carl, nor was the company of the types of women some of the men kept. The Army's anti-VD talks had registered with Carl, and he was too bashful to talk to those types of women anyway. Their cavalry training complete, Wander's unit was sent south to Texas City, Texas. Skirmishes along the border had been flaring up, and the cavalry would conduct border patrols along the Rio Grande and act as a deterrent from any cross-border excursions of the revolutionaries down south. The U.S. government has always protected our interests, both home and abroad, especially when the interest abroad is oil. In 1914, while Mexico was several years into a bloody revolution and civil war, U.S. interests included oil wells in the Tampico region along the Gulf of Mexico. Oil had been struck in Tampico several years prior and was considered one of the largest oil fields in the world at the time, with several U.S. companies such as Texas Oil and Standard Oil working in those fields. To protect our interests in the Tampico region, the U.S. maintained a flotilla of naval ships anchored off the coast as both deterrent and potential rescuer. One night, a comedy of errors led to a standoff that nearly mushroomed into a war. While looking for gasoline, several U.S. sailors made a wrong turn into an unauthorized area, which led to the arrest and attainment of a handful of the captured sailors. The arresting Mexican guards spoke no English, the captured U.S. sailors spoke no Spanish, and it would be hours before news of the incident made its way up the chain of command, and once it did, the Mexicans, not wanting to provoke the Americans, released the men at once and apologized for the misunderstanding. Rather than end the matter, the U.S. demanded reparations of a sort. There was little in the way of U.S.-Mexico relations at the time, as President Woodrow Wilson had ended diplomatic relations with Mexico shortly after taking office in 1913. The Mexican presidente at the time, General Victoriano Huerta, had seized power in a military coup that included the execution of the previous presidente, Francisco Madero. President Wilson refused to recognize, quote, a government of butchers, end quote. Knowing that such sentiment was held in Washington, U.S. Naval Admiral Henry Mayo refused the verbal apologies of the local Mexican officials and demanded a written apology and that the Mexicans raise an American flag in Tampico and fire off a 21-gun salute to the flag. The local officials could not, or would not, make the ultimate call to raise a foreign country's flag on sovereign Mexican soil. They passed Admiral Mayo's request to Mexico City, where the Huerta government also declined. The Huerta government did offer a compromise, though. They said both Mexican and American flags would be raised and saluted simultaneously. President Wilson rejected the offer of peace and went before the U.S. Congress to ask for a declaration of war against Mexico. The following day, after receiving congressional approval, but still awaiting approval from the Senate, the U.S. sent an invasion party ashore a couple hundred miles south of Tampico in Veracruz. The American president believed the invasion party would be received warmly by the Mexican people as liberators of the Huerta oppression. While Tampico was where the affair started, Veracruz was rumored to soon be receiving a shipment of machine guns and ammunition from Germany for delivery to Huerta's army. Not wanting those guns and bullets making their way to Huerta, 
Wilson decided to block the Port of Veracruz, as it was the closest major port to Mexico City, and would hopefully help choke the flow of goods to Huerta's government. A force of near 800 Marines and sailors went ashore on April 21, 1914, and were met with sporadic pockets of resistance. One unit, after facing no resistance coming ashore, soon marched in parade fashion down a main avenue before several soldiers in the parade were killed by Mexican snipers. A total of 19 Americans died in the invasion. Rather than welcome the U.S. soldiers as liberators, as Wilson had imagined, the population of Veracruz fought fiercely to defend their city and homes, even going so far as throwing bricks from their flat rooftops down at the soldiers below. Hundreds of Mexicans, the majority civilians, died in the fighting. The dead included young and old, men and women, with many still remembered to this day as national heroes. All the while, the American employees working the offices, boardrooms, and oil fields of Tampico had to be evacuated from the area by British and German merchant ships. The flotilla that had been there to protect them had been sent to Veracruz to wage war. After the invasion party had landed in Veracruz, Troop I of the 6th Cavalry sailed from Texas City aboard the commercial steamer San Marcos to Veracruz. Carl would be entering a war zone, though the war zone Carl was getting into would entail more civil service than uncivil actions. A Mexican law held that any public servant would face the death penalty for working against the Mexican government. With a threat of death awaiting whenever the Americans left and ended the occupation, those that held such public service positions in Veracruz simply stopped showing up to work. With no civilians to pick up garbage, operate the utilities, or police the city, the job fell to the occupiers. Carl was likely to have been told to pick up a broom. While Carl ensured the streets of Veracruz were clean, the actions in the street half a world away would soon change his and most of the planet's life. June 28, 1914, outside a small cafe in Sarajevo, in what was then Austro-Hungary, two gunshots rang out that would change the course of civilization for all on the planet. The first heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and his wife Sophie, the Duchess of Hohenberg, had arrived in Sarajevo that day, and while en route to a luncheon, were nearly killed when grenades were thrown at their open-air motor car by would-be Serbian assassins during a parade. While others in their party were injured, the Archduke and Duchess escaped injury, and their driver was able to speed off to safety. Hours later, the Archduke and his Duchess were again being driven through Sarajevo when their driver made a wrong turn. They needed to turn around, and in the midst of a multi-point turn, the open-air car stalled in front of a cafe. 19-year-old Serb, Gavriel Princip, was party to the earlier assassination plot and had stopped at the cafe after he thought the plot was foiled with the earlier unsuccessful grenade attack. The fortuitous Princip approached the car to a distance of about 5 feet, before he fired his 9mm pistol, striking the Archduke in the throat and the Duchess in the abdomen. The car sped off, but the royal pair would both soon be dead. Princip tried to turn his gun on himself, but was stopped by bystanders and handed over to police. His guilt at trial was never in doubt, and he received the maximum sentence available, 20 years. But he would die on April 28, 1918, from the effects of tuberculosis, months before the war he had started would be over. The dominoes of nations had long been lined up through allegiances and treaties. All it took was Princip's actions to set them toppling over, and they fell quickly. Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia. Russia, as an ally of Serbia, mobilized her troops for war with Austria-Hungary. Germany, as an ally of Austria-Hungary, declared war on Russia, and then for good measure, Germany declared war on Belgium and France as well. Great Britain had allegiances with both France and Belgium and came to their defense and would call on all her colonies to contribute to the defense of the crown. India, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and Rhodesia all sent troops where they were needed. A great world war was underway. On the night of May 5, 1915, with her only son hundreds of miles away, Anna Wanderer woke up screaming in the middle of the night. Her family rushed to her side, where she told of having the worst nightmare she'd ever had. She had dreamt that she had seen Carl being hanged from a tree in a lynching. The hysterical woman was put back to bed with assurances that it was only a bad dream and that Carl was safe on his army base in Texas. The next morning, her family found her dead of an apparent suicide. The 49-year-old woman had sliced her own throat with a pair of kitchen shears in the middle of the night. Carl was given a furlough to return home to Chicago to attend his mother's funeral. Despite her descent into religious madness, 
His mother had been the only person that had truly understood Carl, and he took her death hard. As had become his way, Carl attempted to run away from his problems. His enlistment was over in a few months, but rather than return home, he decided he was going to re-enlist and continue to wander. Sensing Carl's depression, his cousin Fred Wanderer decided to try and cheer him up with the going-away party before Carl was to return to his unit in Texas. While at the party, Carl spied a familiar face, one that he had known for years but had never really gotten to know. For the first time in quite some time, a smile crossed Carl's lips. He walked up and reintroduced himself to one of his former butcher shop customers, Ruth Johnson. The two talked like long-lost friends, and Ruth accepted Carl's request to become pen pals. Back in Texas with his unit, Carl kept up his correspondence and budding relationship with Ruth. But despite their frequent letters to each other, Carl still intended to re-enlist in the Army, this time for a four-year stretch. Mother Nature changed his plans, though, when less than a week before his enlistment was up, a storm packing 135-mile-an-hour winds and a 20-foot storm surge made landfall with Galveston on August 17, 1915. The Texas City encampment Carl was stationed at was nothing more than that, an encampment with the emphasis on camp. While some of the officers with multiple stripes on their sleeves had actual brick-and-mortar housing, the enlisted men bunked in hundreds and hundreds of canvas tents less than a mile from the bay. The camp was devastated by what would be known as the Galveston Hurricane of 1915. Carl lost all his clothes and personal effects, but more than that, what really angered Carl was that the Army would not pay him a sufficient reimbursement for his items that were lost in the storm. Despite having intended to do so as recently as a week prior, Carl remained upset at the Army over his loss of personal items and declined to re-enlist. With his three-year commitment to the Army up, Carl was given an honorable discharge as a private and was discharged in Texas City. Before he left, a final letter was written to Ruth, letting her know he would see her soon. Despite some narratives following the ideal that Wanderer joined the army to chase Pancho Villa as part of the Mexican punitive expedition, that is not the case. Carl had been discharged from the army before the hunt for Villa even began. Pancho Villa was viewed as a revolutionary Robin Hood of sorts by the U.S. government up until the late 1915-early 1916 range, and was even considered an ally. It was the U.S. government's decision to back a different horse in the race for Mexican independence that led Villa to feel betrayed by those in Washington and to retaliate. Villa's ensuing raid on Columbus, New Mexico on March 9, 1916, left 23 Americans dead. It was after that attack that the Mexican punitive expedition was formed and put in charge of John Blackjack Pershing. Ironically, Pershing and Villa had met before and considered each other contemporaries. Earlier, in 1915, a San Francisco fire had claimed the lives of Pershing's wife and three daughters. One of the letters of condolence Pershing received was from none other than Pancho Villa. War had raged throughout Europe, North Africa, Asia, and elsewhere for over a year as Carl settled into his life as a butcher back home in Chicago. He now courted his pen pal Ruth as much as her mother would allow, as was Mrs. Johnson's preference that Ruth not date until she was 18 years of age. Ruth and Carl found time to see one another, however, as both had mutual friends through Carl's cousin Fred. A romance was budding in Chicago, while the Allies and Central Powers started to take drastic measures in Europe. 1917 would be looked at as the turning point in the Great War, with huge casualty numbers just the beginning of the story. Morale, both in the citizenry and the armies themselves, were at all-time lows. A war of attrition was well underway, and all the parties involved in the fighting were hurt by its effects. Meanwhile, staying largely neutral had been a boon to American financial interests. As many fortunes were lost in Europe, many fortunes were made in North America. German high command sought to end the war as quickly as possible. They feared U.S. involvement in the war, but knew it would probably take close to a year for America to call together troops, train and arm those troops, before eventually getting them to Europe and on a battlefield. If the Germans could force the French, Russian, or British governments to a surrender of some sort, they might be able to win the war before any American boots touched the continent. The Germans then made what some view as the biggest German blunder of the war. On January 19, 1917, Germany sent a telegram to Mexico, essentially suggesting Mexico should attack the United States. Fortunately for the Americans, and conveniently for her allies, the British intercepted the telegram. Outrage topped the headlines on the front pages of the nation's newspapers on March 1, 1917, when what has become known as a Zimmerman telegram was printed in the papers 
and Germany's outreach to Mexico to attack the United States became public knowledge. The Chicago Daily Tribune's headline screamed, U.S. Bears War Plot Exposes Berlin Intrigue with Mexico. After war had raged in Europe for nearly three years, the United States declared war on Germany on April 6, 1917. The telegram might not have been a singular reason for joining the war, but it was likely the straw that broke the camel's back. With a standing army of less than 100,000 men, the United States called up reserves and passed the Selective Service Act, empowering the federal government to draft men for the army. General John Blackjack Pershing, former commander of the now-ended Mexican Punitive Expedition, had been put in charge of what was to be known as the American Expeditionary Forces, or AEF for short. Pershing landed in France in June of 1917 and soon cabled back to U.S. Army headquarters that he would ideally have a force of one million American men in France by May of 1918. After being in France for a little over a week, Pershing cabled back to Washington and stated that upon further review, he would likely require three million men. With the United States joining the Great War, Ruth knew the inevitable would come about. Before being summoned, Carl, knowing that his prior army service would most likely entail on him getting called back to the army, re-enlisted on August 18, 1917. He was assigned to Company D of the 52nd Infantry and was immediately sent off for training to Camp Forest in Chickamauga Park, Georgia. Once Carl was shipped off to base of training, leaving Ruth alone, Ruth started worrying about Carl and wouldn't stop until he returned home. The poor girl didn't even have her singing to give her solace. When Carl left for training, Ruth quit her dear choir. Even though she lived less than two blocks away, she dreaded putting herself in the position where after choir practice, another gentleman might offer to escort her on the four minutes it took to walk home. Her decency would not allow it. So she stayed home and worried about Carl. In reality, any worry that was due Carl was purely of his own making. Trouble had a way of clinging to Carl, and he didn't seem to mind or learn from the lessons he was given. Carl and Ruth kept up their correspondence of love letters, and soon the talk of a future together came about. Mrs. Johnson still voiced opposition to the seriousness of the pair, though, as she viewed Ruth too young. But a man being sent off to fight in a war has a shorter view of such things, and Carl was adamant, quote, If I can't put a ring on your finger this Christmas, I won't come home at all anymore, end quote. Set in northwest Georgia, near the Tennessee border, Camp Chickamauga had been hastily pulled together as a training camp for the Army. Barracks and mess halls were quickly built on ground that had once been the site of one of the bloodiest battles of the Civil War. Nearly 35,000 Union and Confederate soldiers died there, making the battle the second deadliest of the entire Civil War, trailing only the 46,000-plus killed at Gettysburg. With that history in mind, the men turned their thoughts to the future and how they could survive the war they were about to be a part of. French and British generals visited and taught lessons learned in the new age of warfare being unleashed in Europe. Bayonet fighting was taught, though often with brooms or sticks, in place of an actual rifle and bayonet due to shortages. Trench warfare was taught by young Dwight D. Eisenhower, at that time just a first lieutenant, who served three months at Cap Chickamauga in late 1917 while Carl was stationed at the camp. After a few months of training, Carl's previous military experience showed through and impressed his commanders. Needing all the experience they could get, Carl was promoted to sergeant on December 22, 1917, and was transferred to Company D of the 17th Machine Gun Battalion. A former commander remembered him thusly, quote, Wanderer was a good soldier, excellent drill master, expert with the bayonet, crack shot, but he had no friends in the company. He was a peculiar, taciturn fellow, given to periods of moods and depression. Fellow soldiers are said to have no concrete reason for disliking him, end quote. Over a holiday leave from training in Georgia, Carl proposed, and Ruth happily accepted. For over a year and a half, the newly engaged couple would be away from one another, Ruth normally sitting in a room knitting or at church with their family, while Carl bounced from training camp to training camp in advance of being shipped overseas. While training began in earnest and how best to kill Germans, Carl also went about making enemies that wore the same uniform he did. His moody personality did not win him many friends. Rather, a general dislike was felt both by his men and his fellow officers for him. After having been in Georgia for several months, Carl had run up a sizable debt playing cards with his fellow sergeants. With their inevitable trip to Europe approaching, the men called in their markers. Carl delayed and promised he was good for the money and that they would all get paid. Trust me, he implored them. Knowing he didn't have the money and not wanting to ask Ruth or his father, he came upon another plan to come up with the funds. One Saturday night, he took the bus over the border into nearby Chattanooga, Tennessee. 
The following Monday, Carl returned and settled his debts with tales of cleaning up in a craps game, before he had to fight off three men who tried to jump him and steal his winnings. But with their cash in hand, his former debtors had little concern about his story, or his two black eyes, and the story might have slipped from history had it not been recounted by a former soldier in Carl's company, who had learned more about it a few days later. A military police sergeant had told him of how three young soldiers had been robbed in a Chattanooga alley, all clubbed over the head with a blackjack, on that exact Saturday night. One of the soldiers hadn't been knocked instantly unconscious like his buddies, and was able to get his own lick in. Picking up a brick from the cobbled alley, he struck his assailant. None of the robbed men were able to identify what their attacker looked like, but the brick swinger was positive he, quote, got him between the eyes, end quote. Another tale, retold by a former soldier in Carl's unit, goes to his toughness. Quote, a wild civilian officer who had gone through the pickle factory at Fort Leavenworth came to Chickamauga Park. He had been an athlete idol in the part of the country he had come from, and when he joined the 52nd, he was badly afflicted with a swell head and was lacking in common horse sense, until at last he reached a place where he wanted to be thought hard-boiled. He went promenading about camp, bragging about how hard-boiled he was. One day, he was detailed to instruct 15 sergeants in a bayonet practice in a remote part of the camp. He came back with a badly bruised face, saying he had slipped and been struck in the face with the butt of his bayonet. Wanderer also came back with a bruised countenance. He too told that he had slipped while crossing a ravine. None of the 15 sergeants would say a word about the affair. It was an even draw as to which they disliked more, the officer or Wanderer. But this is a story that regimental gossip told. On reaching the secluded spot where they were to drill, the officer tore off all his insignia and paced up and down the line, as did Goliath in front of the Philistines, and dared anyone to step forward and fight him man to man. Wanderer stepped forth. It was said that the officer was soon more than glad to put on his discarded insignia, thus ending his hard-boiled career. End quote. While troops were ready for a war that could kill them in numerous gruesome ways, a particularly fierce case of influenza appeared and soon spread to various camps throughout the U.S., the Spanish flu had started to spread across the globe, and the close quarters found in bunkhouses, trenches, dugout fortifications, transport trains, and ships would hasten the spread of the virus. Unlike most flu viruses targeting the young and the elderly, this particular strain focused on presumably fit and healthy young adults and could kill quickly. While often going into pneumonia, many victims simply caught the flu and died within 24 to 72 hours. Over 500 million people across the globe would catch the bug. By late May, the Germans had pushed far enough where their big guns could fire artillery shells on Paris. The Germans hoped the ensuing panic of the populace would push the French to a truce. In what would be one of the first tests for the new American troops, the continued push of the Germans was stopped by the AEF's 1st Division at the village of Cantini. The subsequent Second Battle of the Marne River outside Paris would hold off the advance and the Germans would get no nearer to the City of Light. The Battle of Cantini, and the 1st Division in general, were memorialized in a great museum in West Chicago at Cantini Park on the estate of former 1st Division soldier and Chicago Tribune publisher, Colonel Robert R. McCormick. After training at Camp Forest in Georgia for almost 10 months, the 6th Division began their march toward Europe. One morning, a 4 o'clock reveille greeted the 17th Machine Gun Battalion at Carl. They had a 30-mile hike ahead of them, and starting their hike in darkness, was meant to acclimate the troops to what lay ahead. When hundreds of men, their machine guns, and ammunition all needed to be moved, it was no small process, and danger was often around every turn. The hike would see a soldier killed, but not from a bullet or an artillery shell or from mustard gas, but a mule. A lightning bolt and its resounding thunderclap had spooked a mule team pulling a wagon loaded with machine guns. The mules ran off, knocking over a soldier, who then fell under the wheels of the wagon, breaking his back. The dead soldier was picked up, his body put on a different wagon, and the hike continued after a short delay. The men saw firsthand that danger would surround them at all times and would not necessarily speak German. After a day of hiking dusty trails through cotton fields, the men finally reached Camp Landrum on the border between the Carolinas. Supper that night, well after midnight, would be what they had had for breakfast and for dinner as well, canned beans. Thousands of sweaty men having eaten nothing but beans all day. Those barracks must have smelled a little bit ripe that night. After weeks of dry and dusty conditions, recent rains brought some cooler temperatures and also gave the men another prelude to what they might find in Europe. Muddy roads. Another 30-mile hike awaited the men to get from Camp Landrum to Camp Wadsworth, a few miles east of Spartanburg, South Carolina. 
Their time in Camp Wadsworth would start to make the specter of going to Europe feel like it was approaching quickly. The clothes on their backs and in their packs was taken and traded in for new gear. Supplies were restocked. Letters home now included information and instructions about life insurance policies that the men had taken out on themselves. The men also found out they would be heading to Camp Mills on Long Island for their embarkation to Europe. Carl wrote to Ruth, instructing her to address future letters to, quote, Sergeant Carl Wanderer, 17th Machine Gun Battalion, somewhere in France, end quote. As American enthusiasm surged, with letters home telling of going off to kill Huns, many of those Huns had tired of the war. After being one of the main German success stories of the war, the troops from the Eastern Front, who had made huge gains against the Russians, were now being shipped over to the quagmire that was the Western Front. Many were not up for the fight, and German troops began to desert in large numbers by hopping off their transport trains as they crossed Germany. After being in Georgia and South Carolina, where it was either hot and muggy or hot and dusty, most of the men of the 6th Division found themselves in the right place at the right time, New York City on the 4th of July. Knowing they would sail for France in 48 hours to fight for their country, not knowing if they would return, they were given a 24-hour pass into New York City to celebrate Independence Day. One can only imagine the debauchery that went on that night. While many men were undoubtedly still shaking off some cobwebs, the 6th Division sailed for France on July 6th. 16 days later, a cheering crowd of French citizens greeted Carl and his shipmates as they docked in Le Havre. Carl was one of 300,000 AEF soldiers to have arrived in France that July. The 6th Division was quickly sent to the 9th Training Area in Chateauvillon, about 150 miles southeast of Paris. After a month of training with French and British commanders on the ever-changing tactics used in the war, the 6th Division moved closer to the front. A little over one year after having re-enlisted in the Army, Carl arrived at the Western Front, a sergeant in the American Expeditionary Force. The 6th Division continued into Alsace and was stationed in the Vosges Mountain Resort town of Girard-Mer. Situated on a beautiful lake, the town initially belied the horror that was happening all around. The persistent sound of distant artillery shells, though, pulled one back to the moment before idyllic daydreams could manifest. While hundreds of miles of the Western Front are the now-familiar fortified trenches, buttressed with lumber, sandbags, stone, and earth, separated by a no-man's land strewn with barbed wire, the Front in the Vosges Mountains was often made up of individual fortified defensive bunkers. The rough mountains and rougher weather had relegated the Vosges Theater to almost a stalemate. Both sides were dug into their own well-defended positions, and other than occasional small raiding parties, the opposing forces in the Vosges were content to lob shells at one another and hold out until the war was decided in the trenches elsewhere. Carl's only time at the front saw he and his machine gun battalion hold the fortification line nearly 15 miles long spread through hills, towns, forests, and over mountain passes. The men felt a wide gamut of emotions at the front. Most were excited, yet anxious, that they might get a chance to kill a real German after months and months of sparring and drilling against men wearing the same uniform as they. Many felt paranoia and fear at the realization that men wearing different uniforms were nearby and wanted to kill them. The closest Carl would come to a firefight occurred when gunfire flared up against his position one night, but the flare-up turned out to only be covering fire as the Germans fell back in retreat. Momentum in the war had swung to the Allies, and witnessing such German retreats led the men to believe they would be in Berlin soon. After over three weeks at the front, Carl's 17th Machine Gun Battalion returned to Jardmer. The stay in the resort town was short-lived, however, as the 6th Division started to earn what became the division's nickname, the Sightseeing 6th. With the Meuse-Argonne offensive underway, the 6th Division trailed behind in a reserve role as the 82nd Division plowed through, leaving a wake of destruction to land, man, and beast. The 82nd's charge had been more successful than anticipated due to minimal German resistance. So little resistance, in fact, that Carl and his troops' main role was less about combat and more about handling surrendering German prisoners. As battlefield losses mounted, the German high command also had to deal with mutinies and civilian work stoppages that progressed to the point that political confidence soured so badly that Kaiser Wilhelm II was left with no other option but to abdicate his throne. On November 9, 1918, he left power, and took exile in the Netherlands. With the Kaiser gone, various factions positioned themselves throughout the night to plan the future of a new Germany. The monarchy was abolished, and a German republic was born. And so it was that at 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, the war ended as Germany and the Allies signed an armistice. Karl's unit, fittingly, spent the day marching. 
The thoughts of the two million American soldiers that had made it to France all turned to when they might go home. Back in Chicago, news of the armistice took the city by storm as the denizens spilled out into the streets. Hugs and backslaps were exchanged. Their husband, brother, son, or fiancé was going to be home for Christmas, they told each other. And while many did make it home for the holidays, Carl was not destined to be one of them. When the division wasn't marching, they were road building. Providing a service for the Department of Services of Supply was not what the men wanted to do, and their angst grew day by day as they floundered in limbo as to when they might get word about going home. Despite many of the men's beliefs that they would be going home after Germany signed the armistice, the 6th Division learned that instead they were scheduled for more training, this time to hold and detain German prisoners until after a peace treaty could be reached. The realization that the men would be spending Christmas in France, or possibly worse, Germany, hit morale hard. Carl's unit was to be stationed in another picturesque European village, Koschem, Germany, as members of the German occupation force, so that they could provide protection and security to an uneasy German populace. While most of the men in Carl's unit dreaded the assignment, Carl looked forward to it. The Moselle region, where they were to be stationed in, would give Carl the opportunity to satisfy a newfound passion of his, wine. While he still did not imbibe in alcohol much, the men in his unit did, and Carl enjoyed showering gifts of good wine on his soldiers. It was also likely around this time that Carl purchased his own gun. Many soldiers had hoped to get a German Luger off a dead soldier, but Carl wound up purchasing a gun identical to his government issue M1911 Colt 45 service revolver. He later complained that he hadn't noticed the engraved initials on the gun, LSB, when he purchased it. The oversight would not be his last as it related to his guns. Meanwhile, letters from Ruth would talk of wedding dates and guest lists. She asked Carl if he thought he could make it home in time for a wedding date of June 17th. The day would be her parents' 25th wedding anniversary, and Ruth wanted to honor her parents by getting married on the same date. Carl felt the weight of his upcoming matrimony upon his shoulders, and he didn't like it. April 28, 1919, while waiting to go home, Carl was promoted to 2nd Lieutenant Infantry. With a peace treaty still proving elusive, the division headed to Koblenz, Germany, to protect a bridgehead at the confluence of the Moselle and Rhine rivers. In what would later be termed a snafu, multiple train rides and hikes had gotten Carl and his unit about halfway to Koblenz before the 6th Division's transfer was suspended, and they were told to return to Agnès le Duc. The men would have groused about the sudden change in plans, but rumor had it their orders had been canceled because they'd be heading home. Soon the rumors proved true, and Carl and the 6th Division were ordered to the coastal town of Brest, where before too long they sailed for home, aboard the dazzle camouflage-painted transport ship, the Orizaba, on June 2, 1919. Nine days after leaving France, the Orizaba arrived in Newport News, Virginia, where a cheering crowd greeted the 8,000 troops that disembarked, of which were 26 officers and 601 soldiers from Wanderer's 17th Machine Gun Battalion. After returning from France, Carl's battalion was stationed at Camp Grant in Rockford, Illinois, as the unit was mustered out of the army. Despite only being at Camp Grant a couple weeks, Carl found his way into a fight and a jail cell. Entering a Rockford diner, he spied a cute girl seated in the restaurant. The Belvedere Daily Republican reported, quote, Wanderer sauntered in, clad in his dapper uniform and carrying a swagger stick. On his way to a table, he is said to have leaned over and with a smile made a remark to the girl. Her escort was on his feet instantly and struck Wanderer across the mouth, end quote. Unfortunately for Carl, the escort of the young woman was also an officer and unafraid to put Carl in his place, regardless of the stripes on his sleeves. Carl was said to be licked and publicly thrashed by his fellow soldier before the Rockford police could arrive and arrest the pair. No police charges would ultimately be filed, nor would any discipline be meted out by the Army. Nearly two years after re-enlisting, Carl was honorably discharged from the U.S. Army as a second lieutenant. His second tour in the Army brought to five years total that Carl served his country. Whether it was Carl playing up his war service, or a newspaper reporter spicing up his story, in the days after the murder of his wife and the ragged stranger, Carl was reported to have been a war hero. Newspapers across the country wrote that he was a recipient of the Army's Distinguished Service Cross and the French military's Croix de Guerre. In truth, he won neither. While Wander's military career advanced from private to second lieutenant, he was never awarded any medals for valor or distinguished service. While Carl volunteered to defend his country, not knowing what his service would entail, the reality of where and when he served amounted to him winning a golden ticket. He served at a portion of the Western Front that had some of the lowest casualty numbers of the war, and his time at the front totaled less than three weeks, and even that was only a month before the Germans surrendered. 
Indeed, the only injury Carl would suffer during the war was getting hit in the head with a baseball. There is nothing in his service history that would lead one to believe that he suffered from shell shock, and aside from the baseball, he suffered no other obvious injuries that could have led to a brain trauma that may have explained away his future actions. June 28, 1919, exactly four years after a Serbian teen assassinated two Austro-Hungarians and started a world war, German delegates signed the Versailles Peace Treaty. The Great War killed or injured over 35 million soldiers and civilians across the globe. Coupled with another 20 to 50 million people estimated to have died from the Spanish flu, the world had seen a few rough years. His hopes of killing Germans dashed, Karl returned to the work he hated in the butcher shop. It wasn't long, though, before a new German would cause his fortunes to change. A pretty blonde customer entered the shop. She had the slightest hint of a German accent and introduced herself to the new butcher. Julia was her name, she told Karl. Julia Schmidt. Ludwig Schmidt, his wife Amelia, and their four children had immigrated from Germany in 1911. The family had moved to 2648 Northwestern Avenue, across the street from the Wanderer Butcher Shop, after Carl had left for the war. Such a convenience led to Julia frequenting the butcher shop three to four times a week. Julia reminded Carl the women he had met while stationed in Germany after the armistice, and was a fresh reminder to him of his freewheeling army life. While Carl flirted with her whenever she came into the shop, flirtations would be all that were exchanged, as unbeknownst to Julia, Carl had a fiancé at home and a wedding to prepare for. Ruth could hardly wait for the wedding. Ruth was a compulsive list maker, and she had already compiled lists of items they would need for their life together, as well as lists of possible baby names for their children. She shared all of her lists with Carl, who always feigned amusement. He did not want a big wedding, nor did he want to plan ahead for their children. He prodded her to bypass a big wedding. Think of the money that would be saved, he told her. The frugal woman gave in, and on Wednesday, October 1st, 1919, Carl and Ruth had a quiet ceremony at the church Carl had attended before he had met Ruth, Messiah Lutheran at 3309 North Seminary. Ruth would have preferred to have had the ceremony at her church, but she was happy to be getting married, and if it made Carl happy, she would do whatever was asked of her. After the ceremony, the newlyweds returned to the Johnson family apartment to celebrate with their families and a few friends. Married life fit Ruth perfectly. And wasn't long, right before Christmas, Carl came home one night and Ruth pulled him close and smiled ear to ear, a smile that could only mean one thing. There would be another stocking to hang the next Christmas. Within a couple weeks of finding out that he would be a father, a perfect storm of circumstances aligned after Christmas and nearly made the unborn child fatherless. The Christmas holiday was always a busy week in the Wanderer Butcher Shop, and with how the holiday and the weekend fell, Carl had not been able to get to the bank to drop the large cash deposit from the week. At closing time, three men entered the shop, pulled out revolvers, and held Carl up. He was struck over the head and shot in the leg. Over $800, about 11000 in today's money, was taken from Carl. He escaped serious injury, but vowed to carry his army gun after the robbery, so he wouldn't have to go so quietly the next time he faced off with peril. All of Carl's perceived troubles, an overly doting wife, a child on the way that he wasn't ready for, being shot and robbed of his father's money, had put Carl in the mood for a drink. Carl had slowly gained a taste for booze, and his hooch of preference was like his soul. Dark. He liked whiskey. He found plenty of it on the dives on Madison, and was soon spending more time in speakeasies than he was at home. But in typical wanderer fashion, as it related to his troubles, when it rains it pours. How was a man to drown his sorrows when there was no pouring going on? At least legal pouring. Friday, January 16th, barely two weeks after Carl was robbed and shot, the Volstead Act and Prohibition went into law. How cruel to take away a man's drink on a Friday. Of course, no one, or at least not many, went without in Chicago. Carl hated being a butcher, he didn't want a baby, and he found his world stifling to him and closing in more and more every day. More and more whiskey was needed to stave it away. Thoughts of his youth and running away from the family farm returned to him, but how could he run off with a wife to care for and a new baby do soon? As June 1920 got underway, Carl was not focused on his upcoming child, as most expectant fathers might be. His attention had turned from his soon-to-be-growing family to the soon-to-be 17-year-old Julia Schmidt. Their flirtations had resumed, and out of earshot of his father, Carl had asked her if she would accompany him to Riverview Park. She said yes. After closing the shop on a Tuesday, a couple weeks into straw hat season, Carl cleaned up, put on his new straw hat, and met Julia at the corner of Western and Logan. The couple caught a taxi, a rare treat for the young girl, and headed north up western towards the amusement park. 
Riverview Park had opened in 1904, near where Lane Tech sits today, bordered by Western Avenue, the River, Belmont, and Addison. The Chutes Water Flume ride was a park favorite, as were the Jackrabbit, the Roller Coaster, and the Parachutes ride. The park also had one of the largest carousels around, five full rings of animals to ride. Carl and Julia rode them all. It was on the midway of the park where the couple posed to have their photo taken together. The photo of the smiling couple would later make Wanderer a very unsympathetic defendant at trial. It wasn't long before Carl was falling for the young girl. They went out several more times, Carl wrote her endearing love letters, and before long he kissed her. Never was spoken of the fact that he had a wife that was seven months pregnant. The young couple settled into a routine where Carl would take Julie to Riverview nearly weekly. After going to the park, they would all take a taxi to get home, as it provided them an opportunity to trade kisses in the back of it. Carl even spoke to Julie about going to Crown Point. Crown Point, Indiana, about 50 miles outside of Chicago, was known as a marriage mill, where weddings were performed quickly and painlessly, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Red Grange, Rudolph Valentino, and Ronald Reagan were just a few of the lovebirds that visited the Hoosier Courthouse to be bound in matrimony. The Justice of the Peace in Crown Point even took out advertising space in the Chicago newspapers, hyping the fact that it was the ideal location for an elopement. That Carl would speak to Julie of such things, even in jest, could only mean somewhere in the back of his mind he had to be thinking about what he would do with his current wife. It was the beginning of June when Ruth's mother had begun to be worried that the expected father of her grandchild might not be as excited as her daughter was. Her son-in-law had become distant. He spoke to the family less and seemed morose. And that was when he was home. Eugenia took note of Carl not coming home one night at all. The mother feigned not noticing and didn't say anything to her daughter, not wanting to disturb her. Then it happened again. Carl went out and didn't return until the next day. This time, the mother couldn't let it go. Why didn't Carl come home, she asked. Her daughter brushed off her mother's concerns with, Oh, he went to see a friend. Her mother pestered her further, not believing the explanation. Oh, let him have a good time. I don't want to draw the reins too tight. He must have some fun, Ruth told her. Mrs. Johnson, with the mother's concern, felt something wasn't right, but she retreated to the shadows. Her daughter was happy, and far be it from her to share her suspicions and ruin that happiness. Julia was also talking about love with her mother. She had shared with her mother a love note, written to her by the young butcher who had fought overseas and was now courting her. The young soldier was clearly infatuated with the young girl, but Julia assured her mother Carl had been nothing but a gentleman on their dates and taxi rides. One thing she didn't tell her mother about, however, was Crown Point. Like he had many times before in his life, Carl had hatched a plan, put it in motion with little thought, and then awoke early to carry it out. On the morning of June 21, 1920, Carl squinted at the incoming daylight in the bed he shared with his pregnant wife Ruth, and he thought to himself, I'm going to kill my wife today. On the next episode of The Mystery of the Ragged Stranger, Murderer in the Vestibule. Thank you for listening, and my thanks go out to Edgar Ramos and Matt Schwerha and everyone at Chicago Now for their help in producing this podcast. This series is made up of eight episodes, and our next episode will air on Monday, July 9th. We will then continue to release new episodes every other Monday through the end of September. We're going to leave you with a song fittingly called The Butcher's Boy by Buell Casey. The song is being heard courtesy of June Apple Recordings in Whitesburg, Kentucky. Enjoy.
railroad boy goes and sits down. He takes that strange girl on his knee, and he tells to her what he won't tell me. Her father, he came in from work and said, Where's daughter? She seems so hurt. He went upstairs to give her hope, but found her hanging on a rope. He took his Oh, Lord. 